Well, if you've been with us over the last six weeks, we're now on week seven of our series looking at the attributes of God. And I said earlier that this is a series, a topical series, where we are trying to have a bit more a holistic understanding of who God is and what he is like. And tonight we are kind of coming to the end of a mini-series within a series, if you like. Um, two weeks ago we looked at God's omnipresence, the fact that he is all-present. Last week we considered God's omniscience, the fact that God is all-knowing. And tonight we get to the last of the omnis, which is the omnipotence of God, the fact that God is all-powerful. And that's what we're going to be thinking about this evening And we've done this deliberately, we've done this deliberately off the back of considering that God is infinite and unchanging. Let me explain. Well, for God to be omnipresent is for him to be infinite and unchanging in relation to space. For God to be omniscient is for him to be infinite and unchanging in relation to his knowledge. And for God to be omnipotent is for him to be infinite and unchanging in relation to his power. Well, what does it mean for us to say that God is omnipotent? That's our first heading on our outlines, if you're following along on the sheet. How do we define the fact that God is omnipotent? Where do we start? Well, very simply, as said already, it's to say that God is all-powerful. All of God's attributes, you know, as we said during our series, are total attributes in that he cannot be quite anything. God cannot be quite powerful. He is all powerful. In fact, he is power. And there are a number of places that we could turn to in the Bible to look at this, not least in the very name of God. Throughout the Old Testament, God is repeatedly referred to being God Almighty. The theme of his omnipotence is something that comes through explicitly, but also implicitly. He is the God who can do all things. He can do all things. Nothing stands in God's way. He can create the universe. He can stop the mouths of liars. He can make fires that don't burn. He can make the water stand still. He can hold back the sun in the sky, and so on and so forth. To put it simply, in the words of Jeremiah 32, verse 17, Our sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. It's a great Old Testament verse, isn't it, that speaks of God's omnipotence. And when we get to the New Testament, we see that one of the proper names that Jesus applies to God the Father is that of power. One example would be in Mark 14, verse 62. Jesus says, you will see the Son of Man, that is Jesus, standing at the right hand of power. And that's interesting, isn't it? God isn't just powerful, he is power. His name is power. He is the ultimate cause of all things. And there is no power anywhere in the universe without there first being a God who is almighty. And because God is omnipotent, 
There is nothing which is, tif- which is too difficult for him to do. You know, God, he doesn't look at a particular task and think, wow, this is going to be a bit difficult, isn't it? I wonder whether it's really within my skill set. He's not like us when we experience any degrees of difficulty. Now, I can play Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star on the piano just as much as anybody else can, all right? You know, but with a bit of practice, you know, I might be able to get a few more advanced pieces under my, under my belt and perhaps I can get away with playing in church. But I know that there is no chance that I could get anywhere near playing Chopin's Nocturne Number 2 in E-flat. But with God, he is able to do all things equally easily. He is equally able to create the universe as he is to create a raindrop of water, because he is omnipotent. And this is what we saw in Psalm 33 at the beginning of our service, isn't it? What does it cost God in terms of his exertion to make the universe? The answer, it cost him a word. Do you remember Psalm 33, verse 9? It says, he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. That's the power of God. God speaks and that thing happens. It's not a case that God speaks and if conditions are perfect and if there is a tailwind or if there is an R in the month, And if all the free agents play ball, then it might happen. No, God is not like that. God is much, much more simpler than that. God speaks and it happens. Just like that. Just like in creation. And of course, if God isn't omnipotent, if he is not all-powerful, then he really can't be God. He's little more than Professor Frankenstein. He's created something, in which case the universe, over which he has no ultimate control. He doesn't know how it's all going to turn out. He's little more than the guy who wound up the clock and has set it running, and he's in large part just sat down as a spectator, wondering how it's all going to work out. And he's slightly annoyed It's not going according to plan. That's what we would call open theism. The idea that God's knowledge is dynamic. Always moving. Always changing. God's use of power is flexible. He's rolling with the punches. He's reactionary. The future is a plurality of branching possibilities which keeps God on his toes. He might know the final destination... But the journey is a bumpy ride indeed. But friends, that is not the God that we see in the Bible. In the Bible we see the God who is in control. He is sovereign over all things. This is why we cannot talk about God's power in isolation from God's will. So we just looked at how we can start by looking at what it means for God to be omnipotent, now we need to understand what it means for God to be all-powerful theologically. So our second heading, how should we understand God's power theologically? Now, in order to understand this, we need to draw a distinction between what we call God's absolute power and God's ordained power. 
Now stick with me with this for a while if you can. Just, let's just start by thinking about it in human terms for a moment. So, when I get up in the morning, I walk across to my wardrobe and I look at the vast array of shirts and jumpers that are in that wardrobe and yet I pick one out of that. That is what I'm going to wear on that day. The point is, I have the absolute power, don't I, to select any of those clothes on display, but it's my ordained power, if you like, at work, which determines which shirt I will wear, ensuring that I step outside of Patterdale Drive and onto the estate, looking every bit the epitome of sartorial elegance. And God's absolute power is all of the things that God could possibly do. But he doesn't necessarily do them, does he? I mean, God has the absolute power over creation to send beautiful sunshine tomorrow, or to send dreary rain, or even to dump a big mound of snow outside my front door, if you get my drift. But God won't do all of those things, will he? Even though sometimes it does feel like he's trying to squeeze a few seasons into one single day. But God, he has the absolute power to do any of those things. But what God will actually do tomorrow is his ordained will. God will do what he ordains to happen. So his ordained power is the thing which God does which is according to his will. So we can safely say that God's ordained power and ordained will are one and the same thing. In other words, what God wants to do, God does. There is nothing which frustrates that will. Whatever God wants to do, God can do and God will do. Here's what Thomas Watson, a 16th century Christian leader, once wrote on this. Thomas Watson writes this, God can do what he will. His power is as large as his will. God's power is of equal extent to his will. This week, our friends across the pond, they've been having their midterm elections, if you've been watching the news. And what they've been doing, millions upon millions of Americans have been voting on which candidate they think is best to represent their particular state in Congress and the House of Representatives, be it Democrats or Republicans. Now, it seems as though it's been quite a tight race for some time, and there's not been an absolute clear majority across the board of the United States, meaning Congress and other areas of American government will be more or less equally split between Democrats and Republicans, give or take. This will undoubtedly, I'm sure, impact President Joe Biden because he will find it very difficult to pass into legislation everything that he wants. Or he will have to make severe compromises or amendments in order to approve, get a gain approval from all of Congress and the House of Representatives and the Senate and all so forth. Essentially, Biden's power and Biden's will are not equal, are they? Biden's will regarding bills and policies and legislation are frustrated by his limited power despite being President of the United States. Because Joe Biden is not all-powerful, there is a frustration between his will and his power. 
His will is bigger than his power. And therefore he cannot follow through on his will, can he? He cannot do all that he wants to do all of the time. But that is not the case when it comes to God. God's will and God's power are of equal extent. They overlap perfectly. Whatever God wills through his ordained power, it happens. Whether that's through his creation, human decision-making, sinful choices and behaviour, by prayer, by preaching, by evangelism, and yes, even by the weather, God's will happens nonetheless. And so God is not surprised. He doesn't need to change his formation or roll with the punches because his will and his power are of equal extent. But here is a question. Here's a question. Is it strictly accurate to say that God actually can do anything? So far we've looked at how God's power and God's will are one of the same thing. But there is something else that we need to feed into the equation. And that is God's nature, his character. So we cannot talk about God's power in isolation from God's will, but we also cannot talk about God's will in isolation from God's nature. God's nature, God's nature is also of equal extent with his power and his will. In other words, in other words, God is himself in how he uses his power to fulfill his will. This is really important that we get this clear in our minds and hearts. God is himself in how he uses his power to fulfill his will. You may have heard it said that you are what you eat, or if you're a Forrest Gump fan, then stupid is as stupid does. Well, God is what God does. And because of that, God can only do the things that are in line with his character. He cannot be capricious. He cannot act out of character. He cannot have an off day like we so often do. He cannot sin. Contrary to one of those children's songs you often hear in church, my God is so mighty, so strong and so, so forth, there's nothing that he cannot do. He cannot sin. So the way in which God acts is limited, if you will, by his own character. So in summary, my friends, God's power is understood and exercised according to or governed by his nature. He cannot use any power that he has outside of his nature. And where this cashes out is if God is powerful and good, his use of power must also be good. If God is powerful and loving and just, then God's use of power must also be loving and just. And so on. I'll take the, the example of truth. If God is truth, then God cannot lie. Titus 1 verse 2. He cannot say any untrue thing. He cannot do any unloving thing. He cannot do anything which is outside of his nature or which contradicts his character. All that he does is consistent with his own character. Here comes Thomas Watson again to the rescue. 
Listen to Thomas Watson. Though God can do all things, he cannot do that which stains the glory of his Godhead. He cannot sin. He cannot do that which implies contradiction. To be a God of truth and yet deny himself is a contradiction. And so to summarise all of this, in order to properly grasp God's omnipotence, we need to have those three supporting pillars in place. The power of God, the will of God, and the nature of God, the character of God. All of which are so overlapped that there is no distinction to be made between the three. We cannot separate those things out. The problem is we look around the world that we live in and we do see lots of problems, don't we? So what do we do with that? Well, it's not an easy question to ask, is it? And I don't want to stand here before you and give any glib answers to what is a deeply personal and sensitive issue to a lot of folks here tonight. But it does pose the ethical question about who God is and what he is like. You see, on the one hand, we have to accept that for the universe to exist and for the universe to be sustained, then we need to have an omnipotent God. The whole cosmic carousel would not exist, let alone keep on running and turning unless behind it there was a God who was totally and utterly powerful and sovereign in all things. And yet, we see on the other hand a world that is full of hurt and pain and suffering. It feels like unfettered chaos, even though we know that unfettered chaos is an impossibility and cannot exist. So because of all this, this is ultimately where a lot of people end up. God is there, but either God doesn't care, or God isn't really loving. Maybe that's how you are feeling tonight. Here's how Epicurus, the ancient Greek philosopher, puts it. Epicurus. Is God willing to prevent evil, but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able, but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able or willing, nor willing? Then why call him God? Now, whether or not people would express in those exact terms, that is basically the common argument that we have for atheism and unbelieving you know, these days. And that's perhaps what you are feeling tonight yourself. The idea that, you know, I've looked around the playground and I've seen how the other kids behave. There's clearly no head teacher in charge. Or if there is, then he clearly doesn't care much for his kids. Or he cannot do anything about it. In either case, he's not much of a head teacher, is he? Therefore, I am going to dismiss him on the grounds that either he doesn't exist or that he's not up to the job. And this is exactly, my friends, the reason why we need to understand the difference between God's absolute power and God's ordained power. You can detect, can't you, in Epicurus' words that he starts with the assumption 
that God would be there. Because we kind of need God. We need a being with absolute power for our very existence. And yet because there is evil in this world, we assume that God delights in evil. But that's the confusion between God's absolute power and ordained power. What Epicurus is really saying is this. God, I recognise that you've got absolute power, but in order for me to categorise you as being a good God, I need your ordained power to be in line with my will and not your own. It's saying this. God, use your absolute power To suit my needs, or my preferences, or my assumptions about what is the right course of events for human history. If you're really an all-powerful God, then you will fix my illness. If you're all-powerful, then you'll fix Ukraine. If you're all-powerful, then you'll end poverty. And of course, the offer of the new creation is a promise that those things will indeed happen. But, may I submit to you, it is audacity of the highest order for us to say to God, if you're really good, then you'll give me this further deposit of the new creation gift, wrapped in the way that I want it, and give it to me today. It's saying that I want to separate out the power of God from the knowledge of God and the authority of God and the will of God and the character of God so that I can live the life that I want here and now. A life which is comfortable, a life which makes sense to me, a life which works as I think it should work. And it might be that those things which we desire are all good things. They are noble things. They are not sinful things in any direct way. But, but, they are not necessarily in line with God's will and God's character. And so if God were to do those things, then he would be abusing his absolute power. Well, that's been a a lot of groundwork for us to get through. uh, So thank you for sticking with me on that. But I I don't want to leave us there. I want us to apply all of this into the passage that was read out by Felix earlier in our service. So let's turn to Matthew's Gospel in chapter 26. And I want us to have a look at how this impacted upon the life of Jesus. In particular, I want us to see the interaction between the absolute and ordained power of God, which is one of the clearest features of Jesus' life. So on the third heading on our handout, where do we see God's power in the life of Jesus? Before we get to Matthew 26, let's just start with some verses from John's Gospel. You don't need to turn to them, but Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. But I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Well, it's pretty clear throughout John's Gospel, indeed all of the Gospels, that Jesus was well aware that he was on earth for a very specific purpose. And that was to do the will of the Father. And that defined his life. 
That would be a summary, if you like, of what Jesus did in his life and ministry. Jesus lived in perfect obedience to the will of his Father. But at the same time in the life of Jesus, we see that there were constant temptations he faced to step outside of God's will. And the reason that's important for us today, my friends, is that the essence of that, the centre of that, the kernel of that temptation which Jesus faced throughout his life was to abuse his power rather than to obey the will of God. Think of these examples. You might remember earlier in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 4, you could turn those stones into bread. You could summon the angels to catch you. You could have a wonderful everlasting kingdom without the bother of the cross. All things which were within the power and grasp of God, but against the will of God. Or perhaps we could, we could take a little walk alongside Jesus and Peter in Caesarea and Philippi. Every chapter 16, Jesus says to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and to suffer and to be handed over to the authorities and to be put to death. But Simon Peter, he says, never, Lord, never. I won't see that happen. There's no way that you should go to the cross. Use your power to avoid the cross. Be done with God's will for your life. But what does Jesus say in response? Get behind me, Satan, for you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. And Jesus is exactly right, isn't he? Peter is thinking in just the same way as us in so many ways. You know, come on, God, pull out your finger. You've got the power, so use it. Use it for victory. Let's carry on and go to the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26. So this is where we are, Matthew 26, the Garden of Gethsemane. Once again, Jesus is tempted, isn't he? He sees the agony of the cross in front of him. Everything within him wants to avoid the cross through one word of his absolute power. But it is his obedience to the ordained will of God which keeps him on the path of the cross. Remember, Matthew 26, Jesus says, My Father, if it is at all possible, may this cup be taken away from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. If it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And then finally, a few minutes later, in the same garden, Peter draws out his sword, doesn't he? And, you know, he instructs the servant of the high priest. But did you know what Jesus says in response? Remember what Felix said. Jesus says, do you not think that I can call on my father and that he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scripture be fulfilled? that says that it must happen in this way. Every time it's that same temptation, is it? Use your divine and unlimited power to avoid going to the cross. And every time the answer is the same thing. Every time the answer is the same, isn't it? Yes, I have the power 
to do that. But I don't have the will to do it. What God has planned for me is best. And I will be obedient to his will. So, in conclusion, how is it then that God uses his power? Well, there are two primary ways which we have seen tonight. We see God using his power in creation for his own glory. But he also uses it for salvation history. What comfort is there then in the power of God for us? Well, the greatest comfort is that we have a God who is in control. Who is working all things together for the good of those who love him. He is using his power for our good. We acknowledge, don't we, that God has absolute power. So how we get to know God and what he really is like is to see how he uses his power and he uses it for our good. Jesus says in John 6 verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Well, what is God's will? Verse 39, This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given to me, but raise them up at the last day. The comfort of God's omnipotence is that Jesus came and has performed the will of God on our behalf. He resisted the temptation to use his absolute power to serve himself in any way, but instead followed the will of God to be obedient even to death on a cross in order to save his people. His power, his, all, his un- infinite, unchanging, omnipotent power, it was used for the salvation of sinners like you and I. So why is, the, why is this then good news? Why is it good news? Well, it's good news for us because our future has been made certain in Christ. Because God is omnipotent and all-powerful, we are not left wondering how things will play out. We know that Christ has won the victory and that God's power is put to effect in the salvation of his people. Even though we look around and we do see hurt and pain and suffering. And even though our minds, they are sometimes filled with thoughts like the ones of Epicurus or the ones of Simon Peter. We know that God is at work for our good. He doesn't end the pain now. And he doesn't always answer our prayers how we would like him to perhaps. But we can trust that God remains at work. That Jesus has accomplished salvation and that the new creation is coming where there will be no more crying, there will be no more pain and there will be no death. And at that moment, we will see clearly and we will know that God's almighty power was used in the right way even though we didn't quite understand it all at the time. That's why it's good that we have an all-powerful God. He can do all things. He created all things and he sustains all things. But the way God uses his power is always for good, including for you and I. Let's pray and then we will sing in response.
Dear Father God, we recognise that we might have been sat here this evening and a lot of it might have just gone over our heads. We can't fully comprehend who you are. We thank you, Lord God, that you have revealed and told us what we need to know in order to know you and to have a relationship with you. You have told us that you are the all-powerful God who creates and sustains all things, including us, the every breath that we breathe. And yet you have also told us that through the Lord Jesus, there was no conflict between your absolute power and your ordained power. And that Jesus knew what he was doing and chose to obey your will. And it's so good that that happened because it enabled salvation and victory for your people. So Lord God, some of this may have been difficult to swallow, particularly those who are hurting. We pray, Lord God, that you will draw near to them and that they will draw near to you. And may, Lord God, by the power of your spirit, they will be comforted by your word and that they will want to remain close to their all-powerful creator God. In all of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.